Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. A lot of us are experiencing the current times as very dark ones. Spaceship Earth and humanity are in a lot of trouble as we speed further into the 21st century. We're in the grips of a global pandemic, economic and social instability, and experiencing environmental destruction on a mass scale. It is a time of tremendous challenges, but also of incredible opportunities. And there are some people who are bright lights and visionaries who have a plan to bust our broken paradigms and upgrade humanity. I am incredibly honored and happy to welcome such a bright light to the podcast today. Dr. Ryan Eisler is an acclaimed social system scientist, futurist, cultural historian, and attorney whose research, writing, and speaking has transformed the lives of people worldwide. Dr. Eisler is the author of the groundbreaking book and international bestseller, The Chalice and the Blade, and amongst other, also the books, The Real Wealth of Nations and Nurturing Our Humanity, How Domination and Partnership Shape Our Brains, Lives, and Future. In her work, she shows how to construct a more equitable, sustainable, and less violent world based on partnership rather than domination. Dr. Eisler is also the president of the Center for Partnership Studies and editor-in-chief of the Interdisciplinary Journal of Partnership Studies, an online peer-reviewed journal at the University of Minnesota that was inspired by her work and keynote conferences. She has addressed the United Nations General Assembly the U.S. Department of State and congressional briefings, and has spoken at corporations and universities worldwide on applications of the partnership model introduced in her work. summer and I have passionately dedicated the last 12 years of my life to creating the ultimate human experience mentally, physically and spiritually based on the most powerful ancient teachings and cutting edge modern discoveries and technologies. The Superhumanized podcast is a show committed to sharing what I have learned from the world's leading experts in order to help you achieve your full potential and create your best life ever. Dr. Eisler, thank you so much for being here. I can truly say you're one of the human beings who have inspired me most on this planet. And your life's work has changed the way I look at the world and also at myself in the larger context um, and my role within this human family. It's such an honor to be with you. Well, thank you so much, Ariane. I am so happy to be with you and to hear that my work has contributed to you as that is what it's about. Oh, it has done so tremendously to myself and, and also to many, many people who are dear to me, who I've also shared your profound and uh, truly paradigm-changing work with. Yeah, something about you, I would love to share with the audience for those who may not be familiar with your work yet, but should be, is that you were born in 1931 in Vienna and you witnessed some of the worst 
humanity has as a young girl, the complete regression of humanity and society under the Nazi regime. Would you share with us the experiences of this part of your life and also how it has informed your work? I'd be happy to do that, Ariane. Uh, you know, I have a lot of passion for this work. And as you, I think, have intuited, it's rooted in precisely my early childhood. Um, when my parents and I really had to flee for our lives from the Nazis. And yes, uh, at that time, I witnessed our cruelty and violence. Uh, Crystal Knight, a gang of Nazis came into our home and dragged my father away. But, and this, I think, had a profound impact on me. Uh, my mother displayed what I now call spiritual courage. And it's the courage to stand up against injustice out of love. And she recognized one of the Gestapo men as a young man who had been an errand boy for the family business. She got furious, said, how dare you do this to this man who has been so kind to you? I want him back. And by a miracle, because she could have been killed, because many Jewish people were killed on that night, so-called crystal night, because of all the glass that was shattered in Jewish homes and synagogues and businesses. But by a miracle, uh, and yes, some money did pass hands eventually, she managed to get his release and frankly saved not only his life, but ours, because had he been taken away, we would have stayed rather than fleeing. And like so many, well, I found out, I mean, we, we, we were able to escape to Cuba. They were able to purchase an entry permit to Cuba. And we were actually, it was by a hair's breadth because we were on one of the last ships before the St. Louis, uh, a ship of almost a thousand Jewish women, men and children fleeing the Nazis as we had, uh, who were turned back not only by the Cuban authorities, but by every single nation in the Western Hemisphere. So many of them were killed by the Nazis, as happened to all of, almost all of my extended family, you know, uh, grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins. Um, and, and that led me to questions that eventually uh, my work sought to answer which is precisely when we humans seem to have such a capacity for caring, for consciousness, for creativity, and I saw it in my mother, why has there been so much insensitivity, cruelty, violence? Is it, as we're often told, just the way things are, you know, human nature, inevitable, or are there alternatives? And if so, what are these? Mm -hmm. And as I said, eventually that did lead uh, to my multidisciplinary, cross-cultural, historical re-examination of our past, present, and most importantly, the possibilities for our future. 
And before we actually started recording the interview, Dr. Eisler, I mentioned to you, you know, I'm German born. My father was a diplomat for the German government. I grew up in many, many different countries across the globe um, and was exposed to many different cultures. At the same time, I was also always very aware of my German heritage the good parts, but also the very bad parts. And a sense of collective responsibility had been instilled into me ever since I was a little girl, uh, learning about the atrocities committed under the Nazi regime, and then further throughout my life, witnessing dark chapters of history in different parts of the world. And for me, it's always been an, an, an urge. I've always had this drive uh, to make life better, not only for the individual human beings, but for the larger human family, and also including this, which I see as family, this beautiful planet that we all share. And your work has been extremely inspiring um, on my path. And in your book, The Real Wealth of Nations, you introduce your partnerism model. And for those who are not acquainted with it, what is partnerism and what are your hopes for it of how it might shape our world? Well, first of all, I am so glad again that my work has been of such use to you. And I have to say that I was invited, uh, by the way, to Germany, not only by the former head of Volkswagen, uh, mm -hmm. Daniel Gerdewehr, but also by the former uh, president of the German parliament, Rita Süßmuth. And there was this sense of taking responsibility, mm -hmm. not so much in Austria, not mm -hmm. so much, where mm -hmm. anti-Semitism was still, I'm sure there's anti-Semitism, you know, resurging again in Germany too. I, I think that it's consciousness, it's waking up from what I call the domination trance, mm -hmm. which is really what led to the acceptance. And I, as you know, I deal with a lot of that in my book, Nurturing Our Humanity. How is it that people will vote for these, quote, strong men rulers mm. who scapegoat out groups, so to speak, and blame them for all their problems? But to get to your, to your uh, question, yes, I... You know, linguistic psychologists have long told us that the categories provided by aid culture's language channel mm -hmm. our thinking. So I have introduced a new set of categories. Uh, first of all, the partnership domination social scale, and within it, partnerism. Um, a term that I did introduce in my book, The Real Wealth of Nations, uh, where I applied my findings to economics. And it's really describes what I call a caring economics mm -hmm. of partnerism. Now, that book, by the way, has just been translated into German under the title of the ignored foundations or fundamentals of economics. And I can send you the link for your German-speaking audience if you want. Really, the idea that economics should be caring, mm -hmm. that the main goal of economics should be caring for people, starting at birth, and as you mentioned, caring for our natural life support systems, was 
so alien when this book first came out in 2007 in the United States. Today we are the President of the United States just introduced a bill on supporting what he calls the caring economy. It's a co-option of sorts because it only he, he means by it the care economy, which is part because the caring economy is an economy animated by caring. And it isn't only direct care. But at the time that this book came out, just putting caring and economy in the same sentence, oh my gosh. And, and I always said, isn't that a very interesting symptom of how we've been brainwashed, really, to accept that our economic systems should be driven by uncaring values. And it doesn't have to be that way. And my work has shown that actually a caring economics is not only more effective in human and environmental terms, but also in purely economic terms. And to just wind up, um, and I'd be happy to tell you more about that, we introduced new metrics at the Mm -hmm. Center for Partnership Systems uh, that actually show the enormous return on investment Mm -hmm. for both businesses and nations of investing in caring for people starting at birth, which neuroscience, by the way, shows is essential Mm -hmm. for that high, quote, high quality human capital we hear about so much today. And of course, caring for nature, which with our climate change crisis, uh, obviously is key. Superhumanize. This is something I've always greatly admired about your work uh, to make lives better and more sustainable for you know, all parts of the human family and also include the planet, the system that really sustains us. And you've just brought up the economic of caring. You've coined the term and also way of measuring the value of caring for people and the planet as the social wealth index. Can you explain to us, please, how is it different from the GDP and why does the GDP not work to measure what is truly valuable in our country? Oh, well, um, the GDP, of course, is a relatively new measure, I mean, as as time goes. Uh, But it is a very, very flawed measure based on an incomplete and flawed economic map Mm -hmm. that excludes the three life-sustaining sectors, the household economy, the natural economy, and the volunteer community economy, which are classified in our economic schools to this day. And we're also so classified by both socialist and capitalist theory as only reproductive rather than productive, which takes me directly to GDP because GDP is based on this. But what happens then is that GDP includes as productive activities that make money. So it doesn't matter if these activities also harm or even kill people. Um, Making cigarettes, selling them, the resulting medical costs, the resulting funeral costs, 
They're great for GDP. A, an old stand of trees only gets to be included in GDP when it's dead, mm. when it's cut down. Mm -hmm. The fact that we need trees to breathe and in the same way, because it not only excludes the natural economic sector, but also the household economic sector, it excludes, it doesn't say anything about the economic value of the work of caring for people in households, even though we know today from empirical studies, one of which we also conducted at the Center for Partnership Systems years ago. But uh, for example, a recent Australian study showed that if the care work performed in households, mostly by women, of course, still, although it's beginning to change, more men are doing this work, which is a sign of movement to the partnership side, uh, that if it were included, it would constitute no less than 50% of the reported GDP. So, so it's a crazy measure, which takes me, of course, to the Social Wealth Index. In two, 2014, uh, the center launched 24 social wealth economic indicators with a grant from the Kellogg Foundation. Mm -hmm. And uh, they are divided into two parts. One is human capacity development, which of course includes quality of life, uh, and you know, has it, it 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 includes caring for people, which is what neuroscience shows is essential, and investment in caring for people and caring for nature. But twenty-four indicators are a lot of indicators, so we have a team now of wonderful economists. Uh, from the United Nations, from Harvard, uh, who are working on updating and condensing these indicators into an index because we want it to be accessible. I mean, the one thing about GDP, it's one number. Mm -hmm. It's easy to grasp. And that's what we're working on. And I invite our listeners, our viewers, to support this work, uh, and you can find out more about it at centerforpartnership.org. And um, I invite you to talk to your policymakers, to your colleagues, to your friends about the need to measure, because look, we value what we measure and we measure what we value. And I have to say that this is a Remember I said that our work looks at causes, root causes, rather than just symptoms. And if you really think about it, why was this work relegated to just reproductive? Well, when both Marx and Smith were developing their theories, which, by the way, challenged in one way or another, aspects of domination economics, because that's what we're talking about, not capitalism or socialism. Because if one thing was shown by the COVID-19 pandemic, we need both government policies and markets, right? But in their time, and this is something that I wish we would be taught in our schools, 
so people would understand why we have such a crazy system. In their time, for example, there is nothing in, in either Marx's or Smith's writings in either capitalist or socialist theory about caring for nature. Nature was there to be exploited. And as for the work of caring for people in households, it was supposed to be performed for free by a woman in a male-controlled household. Mm. So much so at that time that even when Marx wrote in most places, uh, if a woman was injured mm -hmm. negligently, she could not sue for her injuries. Only her husband could for loss of her services. So <laughs> capitalism and socialism have to be updated. Uh, I, I mean, yes, we need markets. Yes, we need government policies. But they have to be caring policies and caring rules and reward systems in our markets. Yes, and you just mentioned that there's such a correlation between the domination economics and the exploitation of nature. Um, I'd like, if, if just in uh, some broad strokes, you could, for our audience, explain, because I think it's crucial for people who are not familiar with it, the difference, um, which you also explained and delved into your book, The Chalice and the Blade, but the difference between uh, the dominant-oriented models of human societies and the partnerism-oriented ones. I'd be happy to do that. And I, I want to back up for a moment because I know that uh, most of your work and the work of, uh, of our audience uh, is concerned with personal development. But I don't see the individual as separate Mm -hmm. from the larger social system. And I wrote a book called The Power of Partnership, which I think you would love. Mm -hmm. uh, basically, uh, a practical application of this new frame, which I'll talk about in a moment, to our relationships, because it's about how we relate to ourselves, how, you know, the voices in our head, the uh, how we relate in our intimate relations, in our work relations, but also how we relate in our national and international relations. Who do we vote for? Mm -hmm. uh, what, what is important? And of course, our relations to nature and our spiritual relations. So I, I really highly recommend that book because it's very practical. It's every chapter ends with next steps and uh, very practical things. But uh, having said this, uh, Again, we are talking about what I mentioned earlier, the need for new categories. Because if you think of our conventional categories like right, left, religious, secular, Eastern, Western, Northern, Southern, uh, first of all, I, I, I realized very early when I embarked on this research that none of them answer the questions of my childhood. Mm -hmm. Why? Because there have been repressive, regressive, violent regimes in every one of these categories. But worse, even if you look deeper, these categories marginalize nothing less than the majority of humanity, women and children. And that's huge. And once you study society from a perspective that takes into account the whole of humanity and our planet, then you begin to see 
these two configurations of the partnerism or partnership system and of the domination system. And it's, a, it's always a matter of degree. You know, no society is, is completely one way or the other. But in a partnerism, well, first of all, I should really say that we've been told a false story mm-hmm. because we've been told that it's always, you know, the caveman cartoon, right? And, you know, with one hand, he's yeah. got a weapon, a club. With the other one, he's dragging a woman by the hair. So what's the message that we show to children before their brains, much less their critical faculties, are formed? Hey, that's just how it is. It's human nature. It's always been that way, right? Mm. Always will be. Nonsense. What archaeology, uh, linguistics, DNA studies now show is that actually, and and this is really developed in my books, uh, for millennia, thousands, millions of years, not just the last five or 10,000 years of so-called recorded history, we lived as humans in societies that oriented more to the partnership side. And if we fast forward to the last 300 years, a period of great dislocation as the industrial revolution got into high gear. And today when we have even more dislocation because we're moving rapidly from the industrial to the post-industrial era, every single progressive social movement, and I'd love to go into that at some point, has challenged the same thing, a tradition of domination. But what's the difference between these two models? In a partnership, partnerism system, uh, and it can be, you know, ancient or it can be modern, like there there are trends today in that direction. Uh, In what you have, first of all, is you have, instead of these rigid rankings, hierarchies of domination in both the family, the family and the state, because the family is ignored in most studies, you have more equality, more democracy. And family is very important to take into account, but you don't if you ignore women and children, of course. Mm -hmm. And that's been the fatal flaw of so many studies that we are taught as important knowledge and truths. Second thing is gender. Uh, If you, whether it was Hitler's Germany, Stalin's former Soviet Union, Khomeini's Iran, ISIS, uh, Taliban, the so-called rightist fundamentalist alliance here in the U.S., Trumpism. Uh, What you find is an ideology of not only strongman rule Mm -hmm. in both the family and the state, but also rigid gender stereotypes with the ranking of what is considered masculine over what is considered soft or feminine, like caring. Yes, that's right. And nonviolence. And that takes me to the third uh, difference between these two configurations. And really, they consider matters that are ignored, aren't they? In our conventional sociology classes, and they can't be any longer. If you're going to maintain rigid rankings of domination, hierarchies of domination, you have to have what you have in domination systems. 
built-in abuse and violence. Partnerism, some violence, some abuse, but it doesn't have to be built into the system because instead of hierarchies, and again, this is new language, instead of hierarchies of domination, we all know those, right? You know, you better do what I'm telling you or else. You have hierarchies of actualization. And we read about these today in the management literature of empowering others rather than disempowering others, of the leader, the effective leader being more of a facilitator that elicits from others. They're, see, we're moving in that direction, but we haven't identified it as part of the movement towards partnerism. And of course, the fourth is language and story. I mean, in the domination system, even when it comes to gender, what are the categories that were given, matriarchy or patriarchy? Well, they're two sides of a domination coin, aren't they? We haven't even had the language to express a relationship of mutuality, of mutual benefit, of mutual accountability, of mutual respect, of mutual caring. We've been told this story, you know, like I said, this caveman cartoon. And the real story, which is uh, described in detail using really the evidence from nothing less than neuroscience mm -hmm. today, is very, very different. If anything, by the grace of evolution, we humans, well, we get endorphins. I mean, think about it. We get pleasure when we care for others, whether it's for a spouse or for a lover or for a child for a stranger, or even for a pet. We feel good. But we have to change the rewards of the system. Yes. And so we're talking about changing also not only our gender stereotypes and this gender system of values that we've all internalized, by the way. I mean, we've been taught this. Yes. It isn't us against them. It's, hey, waking up. And, of course, economic rewards. Yeah. I mean, we need policies like paid parental leave, uh, stipends for families to help them, especially if they have children. Uh, we need universal health care. We need caring policies. Superhumanize. Economic rewards and also severing ourselves, our consciousness from what has been imposed on us. You mentioned it before in our interview, you spoke about uh, domination trance. Um, and in your book, Nurturing Our Humanity, you actually also go into the neuroscience of this and explain what prevents us from um, actually what keeps us in this dominator trance. Uh, and that it's in essence also an evolution of a revolution, if you so want to say, of consciousness that is required to break this trance. Can you speak to us about some of these barriers, including uh, the neurobiology uh, parts of that, that hinder us from waking up? I think becoming aware of it is one first step. Well, I really want to emphasize this because what people say, well, what can I do? You know, this is a system. We have changed consciousness. I mean, I sometimes say it as a joke that when I get really depressed, I think of the European Middle Ages. Why? 
because they really are oriented much more closely to the domination side. In fact, they looked a lot like the Taliban with the Inquisition, the Crusades, the witch burnings. I mean, nobody, human rights? I mean, what are you talking about? Women's rights, children's rights? Non-existent. And it was only when people became conscious, conscious of where, of a better alternative that we got laws against child labor that we got i mean everything that we're benefiting from uh, was because people woke up from the domination trance so we can all do that because as i've written extensively uh really once we change our consciousness it affects our actions Mm -hmm. and then our actions affect our relations, they affect our policies. We have the power to affect our policies. It's not going to be easy. There are, this is entrenched. I mean, economics, we're talking about domination economics, and they go way back. I mean, whether it was Chinese emperors, Mm. or whether it was Indian pashas, or whether it was Arab sheiks, or whether it was feudal. Uh, I mean, you know, when I describe uh, so-called neoliberal trickle-down economics, and they're brilliant in terms of neoliberal. This isn't liberal, this is feudal. I mean, what is trickle-down economics? It's the same as in feudal times that those on bottom, right, Mm -hmm. are supposed to content themselves with the scraps dropping from the opulent tables of those on top. It's obscene. But we're told that these are the people who are the job creators. Nonsense. I mean, we're all in this together, and there are a lot of people in corporations who realize that there's something wrong with the system that so misdistributes, creates artificial scarcities by misdistributing wealth and not investing in caring for children and developing their enormous potentials uh, by devaluing the soft and the feminine. You know, there's always money, right, for the prisons, the Mm -hmm. primitive male head of household, or for weapons and wars, you know, the hero is killer. That's, That's domination stuff. But somehow there isn't enough money for health care, for child care, for elder care. I mean, this is crazy for caring for nature. Yeah, it's all part of the domination trance. And you just mentioned uh, domination economics. Of course, uh, globalization is one of the topics and influences that has literally dominated the human experience and also the economies for decades. Um, how would you assess the impact of the policies set forth under the umbrella of globalization on developing countries? Well, I think you know that it has been a disaster, but it doesn't have to be. I mean, look, we live in an era of such incredible uh, technologies of transportation, of communication. We can't put, and now artificial intelligence, of course, I mean, we cannot, or biotechnology, we can't put the genie back in the bottle. But we need different rules, different reward systems. And that can be built into international 
planetary rules. So I am not somebody who says, well, let's go back to nationalism. Let's, or, or I don't even believe that small is necessarily beautiful. Think of how miserable the exploitation of women and children can be, say, in a, in a village mm -hmm. or, or, or in India where girls are weaving and losing their eyesight and, and, and boys too. I mean, it is a crazy system. It's based on domination and exploitation. It doesn't have to be that way. And the exciting news to me is that actually, as we move more into the post-industrial era, I mean, some people like to call it the fourth industrial revolution, but it isn't industrial, it's post-industrial. I mean, it doesn't mean that we stop manufacturing. It just means that, hey, the percentage of the population needed for manufacturing has plummeted, just as the percentage of the population needed for agriculture plummeted as we moved into the industrial era. So, but we can be free of so much of the drudge work. We can use computers, robotics, artificial intelligence, but the issue is not the technology per se, it is how it is programmed. And so we're right back to the fact of what does a system, a social, economic, familial, religious, educational system support. And the categories that help us sort this out are not right, left, religious, secular, Eastern, Western, Northern, Southern, but the domination system and the partnership or partnerism systems. And that's why I hope people will, we have a campaign now at the Center for Partnership Systems to make partnerism mainstream. Yes. And I invite everyone to really be part of this. We need you. We need spokespeople, not only celebrities, yes, we need those, but also people on the ground, in the grassroots changing the conversation changes our consciousness that is how systems have changed and will change if we make it so superhumanize again your work is so important and so profound and the one thing is people getting active and i will put of course all the information you mentioned and the links um into the show notes um, so one thing is really people getting active. The change starts within each and every one of ourselves. Um, there are certain challenges that are definitely, we can overcome them. We've seen many other uh, uh, challenges overcome in the last decades as well that seemed insurmountable. But when we speak about um, multinational corporations, in truth, we need to address that now they own governments. And this is clearly part of what you describe as the dominator system. How can, on a larger scale, your partnership model address this problem? And in your um, uh, estimate, if we think positively, how long would it take to implement sustainable change? Well, you know, we are seeing how change is accelerating. Mm -hmm. Well, we're seeing men challenging the whole notion of what is masculine. Mm -hmm. You're seeing women challenging for, you know, some decades now again, 
what is, quote, feminine, recognizing that we're human and that men can be sensitive and caring and women can be assertive and leaders. And that's part of the movement towards partnership. Uh, institutionally, there are some severe obstacles, uh, but I don't think they're insurmountable. Remember one thing, all of our social institutions, that, that includes economic ones, they're human inventions. We can reinvent them. So I cannot give you, you know, I don't have a crystal ball. I can't tell you how long it will take. I can only tell you that it depends on how much effort we put into this. And why do we need, really, uh, to make partnerism mainstream? We have so many movements, uh, the environmental movement here, the movement against violence against women here, the Black Lives Matter movement here, the but but they're all part of the movement challenging the same thing, a tradition of domination. Once we understand that, and I go into that in some detail in my work, uh, once we steep ourselves in this new way of thinking, we can then be more effective working together. And I have introduced four cornerstones based on my research. Because if you look at the last 300 or so years, well, first of all, you see that all the progressive social movements have challenged the same thing, the tradition of domination. You know, whether it was the so-called rights of man movement of the enlightenment, challenging the so-called divinely ordained right of kings to rule, or the feminist movement challenging the so-called divinely ordained right of men to rule over women and children and the so-called castles, you know, military metaphor of their homes, or the uh, abolitionists, the civil rights, the anti-colonial, the Black Lives Matter movement, challenging again this supposedly divinely ordained right of a, quote, superior race to rule over, quote, an inferior one, all the way to the environmental movement, challenging our once hallowed conquest and domination of nature, which at our level of technology and population, which are the direct result of the domination system, because women don't want to have that many children. If you ask women in Africa, they don't. But look, it, it could take us to an evolutionary day. And what we're seeing is that the domination system simply is reaching its logical end. And I think that because of that, animated by our enormous capacities for consciousness, for caring, for creativity, we can make the change. But we have to really understand what we're doing. And the four cornerstones that have been ignored, because if you look at all of these movements challenging traditions of domination, they've primarily focused on dismantling the top of the domination pyramid. Mm -hmm. Politics and economics is conventionally defined. And what have they left intact almost? The foundations on which the system keeps rebuilding itself in regression after regression. And that starts with childhood, family, neuroscience writ large tells us this, gender because of this hidden system of gendered values, economics because we've got 
a crazy economic system based on a not only incomplete but completely flawed issue of what the purpose of economics is and should be and of course story and language and this is what we can all every one of us begin addressing now as you know the last book that i wrote uh, nurturing our humanity which came out with oxford university press fairly recently i've been working on this book for seven years it takes me a long time to write my books by the way i've been working on it for seven years and then i invited my co-author now the anthropologist Douglas Fry to be my co-author because he is probably the world's expert on how we lived for millions of years in foraging societies, which he calls the original partnership societies. So we need to tell a new story of what is possible and what is true and what is real. We can all do this. And that's what is human agency. Superhumanize. I firmly believe that we're on the precipice of a huge human awakening, you know, consciousness expansion. Uh, at the same time, of course, we see, and I'm glad to hear you say that these domination systems are coming to their natural end, because especially in the recent past, you know, we've seen some. Uh, some um, moves more towards some strongman regimes or populist political figures who even espoused some pretty fascist rhetoric. So this is not something that currently alarms you as far as it's with relation to the further development of people's awareness of the alternative of partnerism models. Well, it does alarm me because I see this circle for our future, not as a struggle between right and left mm -hmm. and religious and secular and Eastern and Western and Northern and Southern, but between the partnership or partnerism and domination elements in each of these conventional categories. That's what the real struggle is about. Once we understand that, you know, these old categories, a colleague of mine calls them weapons of mass distraction because they serve a purpose of domination systems maintenance. They fragment our consciousness. They just completely, you know, confuse us. So let's leave this old thinking behind. I mean, Einstein said it. He said, we cannot solve problems with the same thinking that created them. But yes, I am alarmed because especially as I is, is documented in Nurturing Our Humanity, in periods of rapid change, people from a rigid domination childhood background, not everyone, not everyone, thank goodness, but quite a majority of them, they actually vote for strongman leaders because it's familiar, mm -hmm. it's comforting, it may be a disaster and, and talk about denial. That's part of the domination trance, whether it's climate change denial, whether it's election result denial, whether it's pandemic, you know, COVID-19 pandemic denial. I mean, that's learned very early on in rigid domination families by children who are totally dependent on the very people who 
as is characteristic of domination families, are punishing them because that's what they learned from their parents. I mean, it is, it is not blaming our parents that we're talking about. It's recognizing what has been passed on from generation to generation. And thank goodness today, for example, about parenting, we have on our website uh, a wonderful tool, a very short, The Caring and Connected Parenting Guide based on the latest new neuroscience. We, we have a consensus among child development experts. Even the American Psychological Association has said, you know, spanking, which is ridiculous. I mean, you, you, you think it's okay to spank somebody small and dependent on you, but you know you go to jail if you were to hit a, an adult. I mean, come on, there's a lot of denial in here somewhere, isn't there? Yes. We've been all socialized for this. But even the American Psychological Association said spanking is not only ineffective, because, you know, they, I mean, bad children are children, quote, bad children. Mm -hmm. Children who are spanked a lot tend to be, quote, bad children. I mean, or, or they're completely into withdrawal and denial and, you know, what have you, uh, but also that is harmful psychologically and physically. So what I'm saying is that there are strong partnership trends in even these four cornerstones, but we have to pay special attention to them because otherwise the system will come. It will again rebuild itself, you know, whether it's totalitarianism or so-called religious fundamentalism. I mean, what is that? It's domination fundamentalism, isn't it? Mm. You know, theocratic top-down rule in both the family and the state, the suppression and subordination of women and the so-called soft or feminine and holy wars, you know, violence, abuse. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost so clearly the domination playbook, isn't it? Absolutely. And you pointed out something really, really vital. It starts, um, it proliferates uh, through parenting and in childhood. And obviously, you also correctly said, you know, it's not about blaming the parents, not in most cases. In most cases, people just do the best with what they know and what they've been given. But it's vitally important that we recognize when something is actually not good and they're recognizing it and becoming aware of it breaks that vicious cycle. Um, I love what you've just mentioned, the resource also on your website. I will direct the audience to there. Is there anything else you would like us to be aware of, well, of what's coming up at the Center for Partnership Studies? And also, if you'd like to let people know how they can become more involved with you and support your work. Well, thank you. Uh, we are going to uh, launch uh, an on-demand course called Changing Our Story, Changing Our Lives. And it is uh, consists of four videos and a lot of material. Uh, so I invite people to look out for that. It should uh, launch um, in the next uh, months. Uh, but go to the website, go to centerforpartnership.org, go to partnerism.org. 
uh, be part of the partnerism movement. Uh, I mean, if you can, support us financially. If you know people who have the resources to support us, get them involved, get them engaged, and become a partnership leader. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's really, we can all be leaders. That's really the point. It isn't that there's no leaders in partnership systems, but are the leaders empowering others or disempowering others? Mm. I mean, hierarchies of domination or hierarchies of actualization. Um, and, and, and spread the message. We will be having other courses of, of actually leadership training, but I highly recommend changing our story, changing our lives, where I do four videos. Where are we? How did we get here? Uh, what really is human nature and the four cornerstones? So I really invite you to avail yourself of that. Uh, there are so many resources uh, that we offer. And uh, yes, be part of the partnerism movement. I personally will follow your invitation, Dr. Eisler, and I invite the audience to follow your invitation as well and be part of making this global change, become awakened leaders um, and help humanity level up. Dr. Eisler, there's a question I ask each guest on the podcast, if you'd be willing to share, are there any practices that have enhanced your life mentally or spiritually or physically that you recommend as tools? Breathing. <laughs> <laughs> and I know that sounds so strange because we all breathe. Yeah. Uh, but holding your breath, being stressed is really domination system are trauma factories mm -hmm. and what we're learning today and this is documented in nurturing our humanity is just how prevalent early trauma is mm -hmm. the aces studies adverse childhood experiences even in the united states where we don't have genital mutilation where we don't have child brides uh, where we don't have child labor uh, even here so Uh, I find that, if I remember, to breathe. Also, a practice that keeps me going is knowing that we have the power. What we need is the understanding, as you said, the awareness of what our real possibilities are. And that it isn't a question of the individual against society or society against the individual or nature or or nurture these are false false distractions it's nature and nurture and it's the individual and society and we can create uh if i as i said if i get depressed i think of how far we've really moved from a time of much more rigid domination i breathe better that way it's wonderful advice and dr eisler thank you so much for opening our eyes to what the real possibilities are it's been such a profound pleasure and such an honor to speak with you thank you for being my guest today well thank you ariane for the wonderful work and the wonderful heart and spirit 
that you contribute. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution.